Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club in which we're looking at all's well that ends well. It feels like an enormous amount of time has passed since our last episode about Henry VI part one but it has been a pretty busy week here and I've spent a good deal of it in ancient Persia. If you'd like to hear a Greek tragedy get the Hamlet podcast treatment be sure to check out the website for a link to my other current project. In the meantime, we must get to France, to the home of the Countess of Roussillon. All's Well That Ends Well is among Shakespeare's stranger plays, and often feels quite inaccessible to us these days. At the heart of it, we have one of Shakespeare's most spirited heroines, and one of his most preposterous clowns. The two are linked in their attachment to one of the least pleasant young men in the entire folio, and his name is Bertram. The story of this play is an inversion of a classic European narrative. The plucky young man who overcomes various obstacles to gain the hand of a noble woman far above his station and then raise himself and live with her happily ever after. So far, so medieval, so good. What Shakespeare does is flip the genders. So instead, we have the story of what it takes for a woman to pursue the match that she desires. Unsurprisingly, that's rather more difficult. The play begins in the aftermath of Bertram's father's funeral. His family home, or seat, is Roussillon, and his mother is now sending him back to Paris, where he is to be a ward of the king. Bertram's mother is the Countess of Roussillon, and has the remarkable distinction of being one of very few mothers in Shakespeare. So often they're dead, or absent, but here we have a lady who is central to the action of the play. She isn't the only one who's sad about Bertram leaving for Paris. The Countess also has a ward, a young lady called Helena, whose father also recently died. That father was a physician, famous all over France for his skills. We realise quite quickly that Helena is in love with Bertram, and she's heartbroken that he's now leaving. Before he goes, there's a verbal sparring match between Helena and Parolles, who is rather like the Falstaff to Bertram's Hal. Parolles, who I've called a clown already, is really quite the perfect courtier, all style and swagger and flags and scarves, without ever actually having to fight. Helena herself mocks him for being a coward, and he takes himself off to travel to Paris. The Countess is surprised that Helen is so sad, and assumes that it might be to do with the fact that her father left her so recently. But she manages to tease out of her the real reason for this sadness. Their scenes together are very charming, particularly when Helena is awkwardly embarrassed at the Countess's suggestion that she's like a mother to her. This will not do. If the Countess is her mother, then Bertram is her brother, and any such associations will make her feelings very unseemly. But she comes clean to the Countess in the following speech. Then I confess, here on my knee, before high heaven and you, that before you and next unto high heaven, I love your son. My friends were poor but honest, so is my love. Be not offended, for it hurts not him that he is loved of me. I follow him not by any token of presumptuous suit, nor would I have him till I do deserve him yet never know how that desert should be. 
I know I love in vain, strive against hope. Yet in this captious and intenable sieve, I still pour in the waters of my love, and lack not to lose still. Thus Indian-like, religious in mine error, I adore the sun that looks upon his worshipper, but knows of him no more. My dearest madam, let not your hate encounter with my love for loving where you do, but if yourself, whose aged honour cites a virtuous youth, did ever in so true a flame of liking wish chastely and love dearly, that your Diane was both herself and love, oh then give pity to her whose state is such that cannot choose, but lend and give where she is sure to lose, that seeks not to find that her search implies, but riddle-like lives sweetly where she dies. Helena is a great romantic, and her lovely speech convinces the Countess, who gives her blessing. Bad enough that Bertram and Helena have both lost their fathers, we hear too that the King of France is also dying, wasting away with a terrible fistula. As she pines for Bertram, the Countess points out that Helena could perhaps cure the King, and even if she fails, it'd be a great excuse to travel to Paris and see the man she loves. The fairy tale element of the story is quite strong in these early scenes. Helena gets to Paris, she manages to convince the king to let her treat him, and of course, she cures him. The elated king insists that she shall, as her reward, have her pick of the young men at court as a husband. No prizes for guessing who she picks. But this is a problem play, and Bertram, for the most part, is the problem. He kicks up an awful stink about marrying so far beneath his station, never mind that they've grown up together and seemed quite affectionate until he went to Paris and saw more of the world available to him. The king is very stern and will brook no argument, but Bertram decides to go to Italy to fight in the wars there, of course bringing Paroles with him. He abandons Helena without consummating their marriage and tells her he won't treat her like a wife until she gets his ring on her finger and gets pregnant with his child. And he makes it very clear that he won't be helping her with either of these tasks. So our heroine is left with seemingly unsurmountable challenges. Nevertheless, she persists and makes the journey into Italy herself. She follows the soldiers to Florence, and there she stays at an inn run by a charming widow. This play has an abundance of women. The widow has a daughter called Diana, and surprise, surprise, Bertram has got his eye on her. He even attempts to seduce her, all the more unpleasant given that we know of the great faithful love that Helena has for him, and they are now married. What Bertram doesn't know is that Helena has enlisted Diana's help, so when Diana agrees to an assignation with Bertram late at night, it is in fact Helena that sleeps with him and gets his ring. In terms of 21st century consent laws, this is all deeply problematic, as it was too in Measure for Measure. But the world of fairy tales does seem to allow us some small licence. And Bertram has it coming. Having done what he wanted with Diana, or so he thinks, Bertram abandons her too. The soldiers are headed back to France, and that, it seems, is that. When he gets home, he hears that Helena has died, and since he's now free again, he agrees to marry yet another young woman, 
who has a conveniently attractive pile of land to her name. Since the king is visiting Roussillon, it will all work out quite nicely. Except Diana shows up, demanding justice for the way that Bertram treated her. Everyone is shocked, particularly by the round-the-houses way she describes events. When even the king seems on the point of losing his temper, Diana reveals the trick. She has travelled with Helena, who is revealed as being alive and pregnant. Bertram is reduced to tears and promises to love her now. We're told that all's well that ends well. We've heard the phrase a few times too many even to believe it at this happy ending. And the king agrees to let Diana marry whoever she wants at the French court, perhaps starting the whole story off again. It's all a bit sour and a little bit far-fetched. The final scene can be very affecting in performance because Helena, who has been charming and resilient and smart throughout the play, is so lovely that we do rejoice in seeing her rewarded. The trouble is, she's rewarded with this awful pig, Bertram. Couldn't she do better? Shouldn't she want better? Or is she going to learn that our wishes lose their potency when they're granted? Of all the weddings and reunions that happen at the end of Shakespeare comedies, this is surely the least likely to last or end happily. Even the title, All's Well That Ends Well, seems to hover as a warning. They have a long way to go before their lives end, and goodness knows if it will be a happy road. Shakespeare's source material for this is a rather less complicated story, but he wrote a very complicated play. As well as the main narrative that I've described, there's a whole subplot about Paroles. Like Bertram, he too winds up being tricked and revealed, exposed... <clears throat> he too winds up being tricked and revealed, exposed as a terrible coward by those close to him. Paroles is blindfolded, while Bertram is duped in the dead of night. Both are blinded, and yet neither really seems to learn to see. Paroles is no Falstaff, but he's cut from the same cloth. Perhaps some of the remnants. He can lie and explain his way out of anything, and even when he's reduced to nothing, he manages to keep going. One of the most troublesome problems of this problematic play is its geography. Of course, we know from several other instances that Shakespeare didn't trouble himself too much with the lie of the land or the sea, but this play is quite specific about its locations. Curiously, scholars seem entirely happy to accept received opinions on the subject. A great many of them are willing to believe that the Roussillon described in the play is the old province of France, close to the Pyrenees. This area of the map wouldn't have been unknown to Shakespeare, since the English Queen Catherine, first wife of Henry VIII, was from Aragon, not too far south of that Roussillon. Unfortunately, that Roussillon wasn't Roussillon until about a hundred years later, and all of the traffic of the play, which goes from Roussillon to Paris to Italy and then back to Roussillon via Marseille, seems very, very busy if they're actually heading to the far southwest of France as we know it. But, thanks to a lovely presentation by Julia Cleave at a conference a few years back, we can take it that perhaps Shakespeare meant a different Roussillon. She reveals that there was another one, rather more conveniently situated on the route from France to Italy, and indeed between the stages of Marseille and Lyon. 
Not only that, this lovely chateau had played host to various royal courts and visits on the move, and was an integral part of the higher echelons of French courtly life. So, farewell to the Pyrenees. Cleve also discusses how Elizabethan audiences would probably have been quite familiar with many characters from the French wars of religion during the 16th century, thanks to a play by Christopher Marlowe called The Massacre at Paris. The Marlowe play deals directly with the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in France, and several French notables populate the play. In All's Well That Ends Well, there is a sustained matrix, as Julia Cleave puts it, of satirical allusions to various French courtiers, underlying the otherwise rather bizarre scenes of the culling of Parolles in Act 4. When I directed this play a few years ago, it was to a very specific brief, and we wound up cutting out most of the Parolles scenes, so I didn't have to deal with them too intensely. Even if I had been staging them, I don't know if all of the information that Cleve provides would have done me any good, but she makes a very good case for who all the various lords are, who Captain Spurio and his spinny E might be, and even explains the scarves, the drums, and one of Paroli's strangest lines about snow and cassocks. It's a very thought-provoking lecture, and it draws a very convincing link between the Guise family and the people of this play and conveniently, it's available online. What it doesn't do is tell us why Shakespeare might have been so interested in French noblemen who had flourished decades before this play was written, but perhaps this will someday come to light. Shakespeare's own daughters would have been of marriageable age when this play was written, and it's interesting that he has moved away from the old comedy idea of parents getting in the way of their offspring's love affairs. In this play, the older generation are all eager to help and arrange anything they can to ensure happy marriages. It is the younger people who are difficult, jaded and obstinate and need to get out of their own way. All except Helena, who seems almost staggeringly optimistic in her quest for the man she loves. This play has inspired a good deal of lovely things in my own life. I'll confess that when I thought up the idea of this book club, it was a project to put some shape on this dreadfully surprising year in which so many projects evaporated or were cancelled. I had a notion that I might read one play and one supporting book per week and share them, as I have been doing thus far. The book to accompany All's Well That Ends Well had to be Shakespeare and the Countess by Chris Lautaris. This fascinating book came out a few years ago and describes the war between Shakespeare and a lady called Elizabeth Russell, a countess who lived in Blackfriars and caused all sorts of trouble for our playwright and his company. Sadly, despite it all, I haven't managed to finish the book since I have been swamped with Irish poetry and Greek tragedy for the last couple of months. But I'll get to it eventually and you'll find all details about it on the book club page of the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Now, this play is actually responsible for even more than just the book club. The stage manager who worked with me on our production of All's Well That Ends Well, one of the best I've ever worked with, told me in rehearsal one day that she enjoyed the way I spoke about Shakespeare and that maybe, someday, maybe I should make a podcast. That she would certainly listen if I did. And here we are. 
I won't quite say all's well that ends well yet, mind you, since we are far from finished on either of our parallel journeys, through the folio and through Hamlet itself. For the next of this month's magical and darker plays, I've chosen maybe the darkest and bleakest of them all, and one of my own favourites, King Lear. I do hope you're still reading along with me, and that you're well wherever you are, and I'll speak to you next time.